0: verses 8 through 9. Peter writes these words, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Would you pray with me, please? Father, um, long ago now in our way of thinking, you won the victory for us, and you did it in a way that we would have never expected. You sent the Son that you loved, your one and only Son, into this world, that he might take all of the sins of all of the people of all of the world throughout all of time in his own body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His blood has paid for all of our sins. And you have demonstrated beyond any doubt that you love us and you are committed to us. And we ask that you would strengthen us in our inner person that we might know that love that you have for us, the width and the breadth and the depth and the height of that love that passes understanding and yet which we can know. And may we become, each and every day, a little bit more like our Savior. And we ask that you would speak to us today through your word. And hearing your voice, help us, Lord, to embrace what you say and to endeavor to put it into practice in our lives. And we'll give you all the praise, and we'll give you the glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. So the scriptures uh, teach about two kingdoms, and only two. One of them is the original. It was the one that God laid the foundation for in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of creation. And I suppose the one word that might best describe that to our generation is the word good. The kingdom which God planned for this earth was to be utterly good. And it's referred to in scriptures most of the time as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of light. The other kingdom is in rebellion against God. And throughout history it's had many names and many manifestations. It began as an uprising in the heavenly realms in those first days of the creation and the Bible doesn't offer us details as to the exact timing of it, but at the center of that revolt was Satan who thought that he could be as great as God. And he spread his rebellion um, to this planet, when he enticed our first parents to sin against the Almighty. They exchanged the solid and real good of God and his intentions for them for a mirage, a delusion, a chimera built upon a foundation of lies. And the extent of the damage was such that God's kingdom had to be put on hold. And so instead of building that kingdom with humans, us humans, as his co-regents, God began the process of reclaiming us, his people, saving us from our fallen state. An impartial observer might have considered uh, or concluded that God, uh, who created everything that there is, merely held some small patches of terrain within enemy territory. And yet God was on the move, first through the prophets and then through the nation of Israel. God began revealing truths about himself and about people in their true condition and about the world we live in, preparing us for what was yet to come in that long war which began sometime near the beginning. Not until his son came to earth did the kingdom of God begin to be built again. And it was built not by piling up geography or expanding borders, but by reclaiming the hearts of humankind. And the death of the king was the turning point in the war between good and evil. Jesus' death on that cross paid for our sins and opened our way back into his kingdom for all who would take it. And when he comes back again... Jesus will own it all. Evil will be completely defeated, and God's kingdom will be complete. In the meantime, the long war will continue sometimes in scripture Satan's kingdom for that's what we are talking about is that other kingdom is the kingdom uh, is called the kingdom of darkness and uh, at other times it's referred to as the world and we as Christians know that that means that system which is opposed to God and sometimes in both the Old Testament and the New Testament but especially in the book of the Revelation it's called Babylon, And it's named that uh, because of the nation which conquered and carried Judah into captivity back in about 585 B.C. And, and that name, Babylon, became a symbol of any power which is arrayed against God. And Babylon is our subject for today. It's what our text talks about as we continue to make our way through the book of the Revelation. So at some point this morning, we're going to talk about what Babylon might look like in our own day, or in the end times, if they happen to be different from our days. Many things, I think would make us believe that the last of the last days are right upon us. Now, we're going to have to make our way through the material today uh, pretty quickly, uh, and it may feel like we're hurrying, and it'll feel that way because we are. (laughs) Uh, uh, there really is no better way to present this material and stuff that's contained in this chapter than to try to do it all at once it defies breaking down into smaller parts at least when it comes to preaching everything seems to hang together in a book it might be a little bit different Uh, but if we had two or three hours We could probably go through it at a more leisurely pace, but I have to tell you, I'm afraid the day of three hours, uh, sermons are gone, and none of us has the training for it, not even me. So we simply have to kind of buckle down and, and do what needs to be done. Now, chapter 17 and 18 in the book of Revelation both focus on Babylon, while chapter 18 talks about its fall, its final destruction, uh, which we're going to look at it another day. Well, 17 really describes that dark de- uh, kingdom in some detail to us. And, of course, as with the other material that... Uh, We've looked at in the book of Revelation. We're told about this dark kingdom in highly symbolic language. Now. We here, I think, uh, are kind of used to that now. We, we've been at it for a, a little while. We've been spending a lot of time in this book. And much of what we talk about today will be based on things that we have already seen in our study. So I have to tell you, if you're new here today and you find yourself at a loss, but you want more information... I'd really be glad to meet with you. I'd sit down with you, and I'd kind of, uh, kind of bring you up to speed on where we have been. Or if maybe you have been here, uh, but you find yourself uh, that you miss one of the twists in the roads we take. And if you, if you find yourself in that situation, shoot me an email, and I'll try to put you back on track. Now, I don't mean right now. I'm not going to look at an email right now, but at another time, I would be glad to do that for you. So we're going to cover three areas today, and those are the same three areas that we find in this chapter. First, we're going to talk about, and and I think we'll call it, the character of the kingdom of darkness. And then, very briefly, we're going to look at the real purpose behind it. Many of the people within that kingdom won't realize what it really is all about, but we're going to understand what Satan is up to. And then finally, we will, again, fairly briefly see what God has planned for it. So I'd like you to join me now, once again, in the book of Revelation, chapter 17. We're going to go through pretty much the whole chapter. Uh, It'll be, the text as we go through them will be put up on either side of us, Revelation chapter 17. So the, the first thing that we're told about this Babylon is that it seduces people and turns their hearts from God. And we see that, in among many other places, in verses 1 and 2. And so we read, One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come... I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many words. Now, that punishment, as I told you, uh, will happen in chapter 18, and we'll look at that at another time. But before we get there, we're going to learn a great deal about Babylon and what it really is, and so we pick up our reading in verse 2. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. Now, adultery, you'll remember, is really a symbol of people who embrace something, whatever that something may be, in place of the one true living God. And we call that idolatry. And the intoxication with wine really pictures for us this seduction of of the human heart that leads people into that particular sin. Babylon, whatever else it is, deceives people and turns their hearts from God. Now we're going to come back to this idea in a moment, but before we do, we're, we're going to look at the very next thing that the scriptures tell us about, and which is the source of Babylon's power, and it is, as we would probably guess, Satan. So in verses 3 and 4, we read this. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And she held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And so this beast with the seven heads and the ten horns, of course, it represents both the Antichrist and Satan. And we've seen all this before. And the woman, which is Babylon, is supported by them. It's, she's held up by them. See, Satan is the source of her power, the source of Babylon's power. And she, of course, uh, as this kind always does, uses them to get what she wants. You see, she's fabulously wealthy. though She's had to engage in all sorts of wickedness to get her wealth. That's the stuff that's in that gold cup that she's holding in her hand. But Satan is the source of her power and position. And, And we'll see. He has his own plans. And what he is doing, as we've already noted, is he is seducing people and turning their hearts from God. Now, now his goal here is more than just blinding people to the truth. I mean, that's where it starts. And for some people, maybe it never goes any further than that. It's enough to keep them from heaven. It's enough to keep them separated from God, which is a victory for the kingdom of darkness. But Satan is really angling for something more. See, so he's fishing for a group of people, a group of followers who who will know in some ways what he's up to, and they will not only throw their lot in with him, but they'll, they'll try to make others buy into that program. A little later in the chapter, we're told that those who see the beast are astonished over him. Uh, that earthly representative of Satan, the Antichrist, and what they know from that is they're simply enamored with him and his power. But but it's the mysterious name on the woman's head which really reveals Satan's tactics here. And we find that in verse 5. The name written on her forehead was Mystery. Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So B- Babylon is a, is a harlot, and she's hold herself to get what she wants, and she brings forth daughters, uh, which are just like her. And her daughters, really, it's a picture right, of, of what Babylon produces, a- a- and what comes from her is just more of the same. As George Eldon Ladd says, Babylon is the mother of harlots. She was not satisfied herself alone to entice men away from God. She insists that her daughters join her in their nefarious and blasphemous designs. You see, Satan's goal is to get a group of followers who know, at least to some extent, what he is doing, but who join him wholeheartedly. You know, Romans tells us something similar to that when it says uh, that uh, although they knew God's righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. An example in our day, this is an example of same-sex marriage movement. Uh, You see, they not only want the right to marry, they want to insist, and they do insist, that everybody fall in line with them. Now, if you don't know this, history was made on Thursday in our nation. And not the kind of history that we would like to see, although I'll tell you there are thousands of people in this country who are rejoicing for it. But for the first time... In the history of our nation, a believer was put into jail for living out her beliefs. Kim Davis, a Christian first, a clerk in Tennessee, an elected official under whose name the marriage licenses were issued in her county, could not in good conscience be a part of what she believed to be was sin. And so she ceased issuing any marriage licenses at all in order not to discriminate against anyone. All she wanted was to have her name removed from the document. An executive order from the governor may have done that, or he could have called a special session of the legislature, which would almost certainly have passed a bill to protect people like Ms. Davis, but he refused citing the costs. The homosexual couples could have traveled to another courthouse 30 miles away and got their license here. And yet none of those things were done. Instead, Kim Davis must do what they want or pay the price. Off to jail with her. And she will stay there until she changes her mind. And so it begins, or rather continues, and escalates here in our country. Babylon, which seduces humankind and turns people's hearts from God, is empowered by Satan, who is looking for people who are committed to follow him and force his will on others. Now those are the first things we learn about the character of the dark kingdom, but there's more yet to come, especially how it will appear in the end of the last days. And this passage, as well as others, tells us that this kingdom has a worldwide influence or power. And we've come across that numerous times in our study. But this chapter puts it this way in verse 15. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now, Again, we're going to draw some of our time together, but we've noted before that the oceans and seas are often a symbol of the chaos which is caused by evil. And this chaos has spread all around the world, and Satan's kingdom is found in every part of it. But even though it reaches every corner of our world, there there is still a center for its power, which for our purposes now we're simply going to call a kind of a capital city. And so verse 18 says, The woman you saw uh, is a great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And so Satan is the power behind Babylon. And, and he's building this group of followers who, who will accomplish his purposes. And, and he's using humans to, to do that. And as such, we find this uh, central place which it's, uh, from which its authority emanates a, a kind of a capital city. And, and all of this is revealed to us about that dark kingdom in chapter 17. Now, there's more yet to come. See, this kingdom, this dark kingdom has always appeared as powerful, but it will be especially so in its final form. Indeed, it's really going to seem as though it's invincible. And the fact is revealed to us symbolically in verse 9. And so we read there, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, so this passage begins by telling us this, that we have to think. Very carefully about what we're told here, but it adds to our information about Satan and his corho, the Antichrist. Right, so Satan is pictured with a, as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns, while the beast, of the Antichrist, is like him. He also has seven heads and ten horns, but those seven heads also represent something. More, something more than just kind of a picture of the hideousness of evil. I mean, it does that, yes, but it tells us even more. And, and what they seem to do is they they represent a kind of geography with those seven hills. Uh, and many people simply interpret this scripture to mean that the capital city of Satan's kingdom will be built on seven hills, and you know, Rome was. Rome was built on seven hills. And I've heard it said that Washington, D.C. is too. I've never seen that in print, not at least any source that I would trust, but that I haven't looked. <laughs> but I think that interpretation really is too easy. It really doesn't take into account the nature of this writing or the fact that seven tends to be a symbolic number. And so a better way to understand it is this. Babylon is solidly built. Its foundation is complete. It's built on these seven hills. And so it's complete, at least for an earthly community. It'll appear that way anyway. I mean, for we know that it's going to be overthrown in God's timing. But to those on earth at that time, Babylon is going to look indestructible. And so it, 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 it's a it's a kingdom that seduces humankind and turns people 's hearts from god and it's empowered by Satan who's looking for this group of people who are committed to follow him and will force their will uh, his will on others and his kingdom it's worldwide and, and it is along with its capital city it seems to be invincible now there's something else about this kingdom of darkness that we should know, and it comes right after that statement, this calls for a mind of wisdom, and it's really included in that thought. Uh, it, It, too, adds to our understanding about Satan and the Antichrist. Satan's kingdom is full of intrigue. Verse 10 and following says this. They, the seven heads, are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is... The other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And so these seven heads represent a power structure. There's a series of kings which in one way or another pass on uh, their authority or pass out of their authority. And I want us to agree right now at the very beginning that that word kings can symbolize things like kings, or emperors or prime ministers or presidents or shahs or or some other thing like that. And there's some kind of a power struggle going on here. There are five rulers which have fallen. That means they're no longer in power either because of death or, or an election or a coup d'etat. There's a sixth king who is ruling, at least while John is receiving this vision at this end time the sixth king is ruling and he's followed by a seventh who doesn't last long and one gets this real sense of the intrigue that goes on within this kingdom and verse 11 adds to that the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king He, he belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction so this eighth king that we're talking about here is the antichrist Now, previously, in talking about the beast, you remember who received the fatal wound that seemed to be healed. We said that it might be some kind of a fake resurrection, uh, an imitation or a mockery of Christ. Uh, And and the fact that it's fake doesn't mean that it isn't miraculous. I mean, demonic powers are indeed at work here. Yet it's fake because it's not a real resurrection. At the best, it would be a reanimation. But, But this... Message offers us a different interpretation. You see this eighth king is the Antichrist but he was one of the seven. He's obviously not the seventh king. So he's either one of the five previous one or he's the sixth king. But he's out of power you see and he's so far out that apparently one could think of him as having a mortal wound that takes him out of the game completely. That is, politically speaking, he's dead. We're also told here that he is not now. In other words, he's not the sixth king, the one that was ruling when the angel was talking to John. So we can eliminate the sixth king. So the Antichrist is going to come from one of those five, that group of five kings. The seventh king will come, but he'll only last a little while, telling us that he's going to be outed or ousted by a more cunning adversary who is the Antichrist. The Antichrist stages a comeback. His kingdom is just full of intrigue, but it really goes beyond just his base of power. It's worldwide in scope, as verses 12 and 13 point out. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who will for one hour receive authority as kings along with the beast. And they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. Those in authority in other places all around the world are all part of the schemes and strategies of this Antichrist. And it's really no wonder that the world is in awe of him. And so Babylon seduces humankind, turning people's hearts from God. It's empowered by Satan, who's looking for that group of people who will be committed followers and force others to follow him too. His kingdom will be worldwide, and it, along with the capital city, will seem to be invincible, and it's full of intrigue which reaches the entire globe. Power struggles are a way of life, but one of them rises to the top in all of the midst of that chaos. And that's the beast, the Antichrist. So, so just what is Babylon? Well, if the Antichrist were either a king or an emperor or a prime minister or a president or something like that, Babylon... Represented by that harlot on that beast could be a nation or a group of nations like the European Union or the United Nations or some other power base like the Bilderbergers. Have you ever heard of them or, or the World Bank? I have to tell you something. I am not a conspiracy person and I don't, I don't buy into those things, but who knows? There is some power base and this Antichrist will rule for some base of power that everyone will recognize when we see it. So we can summarize the character of Babylon this way it's the kingdom of darkness it may be a nation or a group of nations or some other entity but whatever it turns out to be it seduces humankind and turns people's hearts from God and it's empowered by Satan who's looking for those people who will be committed to follow him and will force his will on others. And that kingdom will be worldwide, and, and it, along with the capital city, will seem to be invincible, and yet it's full of intrigue involving those in power throughout the world, and the beast, the Antichrist, will prevail. See, that, according to chapter 17, is the character of that dark kingdom, Babylon behind that character, or maybe we should say rising out of it, is its purpose. That's the next area that we were going to look at, the purpose for this kingdom, the reason for its being, at least as far as it knows, because God has his own purposes and plans which will prevail because he is God. But there is a lot of things that this kingdom does or engages in, maybe. But uh, behind it all, the real purpose is to attack and defeat the people of God. And so verse 6 tells us, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who pour the testimony of Jesus. In the beginning of verse 14, uh, we're told they will wage war against the Lamb. You see, the real purpose or intent of the kingdom of darkness is to attack and defeat God's people. Now, we're not going to say any more about that um, subject today. I mean, we've talked about it a lot in the past, and you're well aware, I think, of the persecution of the saints occurring around the world and now even in our own nation. But one of the things we need to understand, the purpose, the real purpose behind Satan's kingdom is to attack and destroy God's people. Now, the last area we're going to look at, as I said, that one was very brief. The last area we're going to look at uh, is what is God doing or going to do? And what's his purpose here? And so the end of verse 14 tells us the end of the matter. uh, And uh, it tells us the final uh, outcome, what it will be. So let's read that entire passage. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, chapter 19 will describe that battle for us and its outcome. Here, we're just simply told that Jesus Christ, upon his return in glory with his people, will be the victor. And that's the end of the matter. But just before that happens. Just before Christ returns. Chapter 17 tells us something else which God will do. It, it reveals this to us, this this act of God, when speaking about the ten kings, we're told in verse 17, "...for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose." By agreeing to give uh, hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. And so God is working out something here. And that word for in verse 17, uh, it it points to what just has been said, which is what God's purpose is. And it's found, as I said in the previous verse. Verse 16 reveals this deep truth about Satan and those uh, that are like him. And that is... They hate everything and everyone, even their own allies. So we read, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. And they will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Satan's kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, will turn upon itself. It will begin to crumble, in a sense, from the inside. It will be plunged into darkness, remember that sixth bowl of judgment, and those in that kingdom will gnaw their tongues. Satan and those like him hate everything, and everyone, even their own allies. And eventually, Satan will turn on the harlot to destroy her. And and if that seems strange to you, you only need to think about uh, how some people in our nation, some people who are in positions and places of power, hate our country. They'll tell you they don't. They'll deny it. But their actions speak louder than their denials. It's in a small microcosm what Satan is like. Him and his followers hate. They hate everyone and everything. So what we've done here this morning <laughs> there's a lot of material, I right know. So we've covered these three hours. We simply look at we. Uh, We can summarize the character of Babylon. I've done it a number of times, but it'll be good to do it one more time. By saying it is a kingdom of darkness. It may be a nation, a group of nations, or some other entity, but whatever it turns out to be, it seduces humankind turns people's hearts from God and it is empowered by Satan who's looking for that group of people who will be committed to follow him and force his will on others. His kingdom is worldwide and it will, along with the capital city, seem to be invincible. And yet, full of intrigue which involves power throughout the world, power struggles as a way of life, but one rises to the top That's the Antichrist. Then we saw the real power, purpose, uh, attempt of the kingdom of darkness, and that is to attack and defeat God's people. And finally, the passage reveals the truth that God uh, has other purposes. He'll use their own hearts full of hatred to destroy the very kingdom which they struggled and connived and fought for. And in the end, God... And his people win. Now, I hope I haven't axed you with so much detail that you haven't been able to follow. But that kingdom is real. And it exists in our day as it has since the beginning. And one day it's going to come to its full power. And it may be here sooner than we think. Now, in just a moment, we're going to uh, observe the Lord's Supper. And years ago, I read uh, an epitaph on a tombstone in Europe for a little child that had died. And that epitaph said this. There is not enough darkness in all of the world to put out the light of one small candle. And we who put our faith in Jesus Christ belong to the kingdom light and it doesn't matter what happens in the world around us we belong to him and so we ever will because of his grace and goodness. now I'm going to ask the men who are going to help me to come forward So, uh, many of you here hear me say this uh, every time we observe the Lord's Supper, but it's one of those things that needs to be repeated, often for us also to be reminded, but for any people who may be new here. We come to this table, and it it doesn't belong to us. I mean, it's not exclusive to uh, Y Bible Church. This is the Lord's table, and so it belongs to anyone who knows him as their Lord and Savior. Now, if you're here today and you don't know him in that way, and if you're sitting there saying, what is he talking about? That means you probably don't. If you don't know him in that personal way, then we're going to ask you to let the bread and the cup pass you by. We're not trying to exclude you. But this is a meal that is just for the family of believers. And if you're not there, then the honorable thing to do is to let it pass you by. And I'm telling you, nobody's going to point it out. No one will come tell me about it. You do what's right and what's honorable. Now, the rest of us who know Christ as our Savior, there, we need to, to partake and participate in this. But there are two reasons why we don't or shouldn't. One is if you're living in unconfessed sin. And to eat of this bread and drink of this cup makes a mockery out of what Christ did. So you have to confess that sin before you partake. And you could maybe do that right there in this seat. Maybe you need to take some time alone later to do that. And maybe you have this animosity between you and another believer that you haven't tried to mend. And if that's the case, once again, you need to let the bread and the cup pass you by. And no one's going to tell me, no one's going to... Draw attention to it. If you made that decision, I know God is at work in your life and he won't let go of you until you get the things right. Otherwise, we want you to eat and drink with us. So our custom is we serve the bread and hold the bread until all are served and then we uh, eat together and then we do the same with the cup. Serve it and hold it until all are served and we drink together. So just before we come to this time, I want to ask you, if you would, to bow your heads, close your eyes, And we're going to ask the living God to search our hearts and our minds. That we're going to examine ourselves before we partake.